This podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Haudenosaunee, Wendat, Cree, and other Indigenous peoples. We are mindful of broken covenants and the need to reconcile with all our relations. Together may we care for this land and each other, drawing on the strength of our mutual history of nation building through peace and friendship, being mindful of the ancestors and generations to come. Welcome to the Intersection Hub podcast, where we are making connections, fostering collaborations, and building community through candid conversations. I'm your host, Kimberly McKenzie, and I'm so glad you found us. Did you know that over 90,000 hours or one third of your life is spent working? What would the world look like if we had a different viewpoint around what work is or should be? Our guest today, Nkoyo Effiong Lewis, will be the first one to tell you that careers are not linear. Nkoyo is a national speaker, advocate, strategist, and systems leader on a mission to revolutionize the world of work, one leader at a time. An educator at heart, an attorney by training, Nkoyo speaks and consults at the intersection of purpose, power, and professionalism in law, education, and social enterprise. Using her proprietary audacious leadership framework, Nkoyo helps individuals and organizations navigate disruption with courage, clarity, and the conviction they need to do the heart things that ultimately change the world. Through a mix of speaking, coaching, and consulting, Nkoyo equips leaders to design boldly for the future of work. She also curates dynamic solutions that accelerate personal and professional growth, overcome complex challenges, and grow through change with curiosity and confidence. In this episode, Nkoyo and I have a deep and rich conversation about making sure you are purposeful in everything you do, questioning and disrupting the power dynamic whenever you can, and the need to redefine professionalism. Just like people, organizations need to transition and shift in response to the community around them, particularly in this post-pandemic world. So Nkoyo is here with her audacious leadership framework to do all of those things. So let's get into it. Nkoyo, I am so glad to welcome you into the hub. Thank you for being here. It's been such a long time planning. Yes, thank you for having me, Kimberly. I am thrilled to be here and really excited anytime I get to share space with you. So looking forward to our conversation. So we used to do that quite a bit on Clubhouse, which I often say was so 2021. <laughs> and and I just, um, let's just get started with you telling us a little bit about your origin story. How did you come to do the work that you're doing today? Yeah, I love to tell people that it's definitely not been a linear path, right? It's been... Um, all over the place and, and many times feeling like unsettled, like, what am I doing? Where am I going? And I make a point of sharing that because I think sometimes we believe that finding the work that you love to do or finding your place in the world is like a series of steps that just sort of build on each other. And for me, that has definitely not been the case. So currently, I consider myself a social impact strategist, a career and leadership strategist. I'm a national speaker. Uh, I do some consulting and coaching. And I came here um, in a very interesting path. I actually, out of undergrad, was a fourth grade teacher, 
taught for several years, coached um, teachers and was like, oh, I always thought I was going to go to law school. And so that was the thing that I thought I was supposed to do. So I went to law school, invested all the time and money in it, only to realize that I didn't really enjoy the practice of law. And so I found myself (laughs) in this weird space of like, I have spent a lot of time and money becoming an attorney. And so I practice at a big law firm here in Atlanta, Georgia. Great experience, great people. Again, just didn't really, um, something was missing. And so I went to another firm and said, maybe if I try a different practice area, I'll enjoy that. Went there, didn't. I said, maybe if I try, you know, a smaller firm, eventually actually ran my own law practice for almost six years before I wound up my practice at the beginning, or I guess right around 2021, October actually is when I left actual law practice because what I found was that I really enjoyed connecting with people. I really enjoyed using law as a tool and helping people see how it could help solve problems. But what I realized is that it was just one tool in the tool um, kit and it didn't allow me to show up as my authentic self. It didn't allow me to really play in the spaces that I found most interesting. And so I made a tough decision to close my law practice and step full um, force into consulting and coaching and speaking um, careers that I never really thought people could do or have. And so that's sort of how I got here. (laughs) And now you work with, you've launched an audacious leadership movement, which is, so tell me what, a little bit about what audacious leadership means to you yes so i am moving for full force forward with the audacious leadership brand and movement Um, we have a lab that we're actually going to be launching at the beginning of the year next year but to me audacious leadership really means being fully present and aware of what's going on with yourself internally and externally and leading from your values leading from vision and leading in a way that aligns with where the world is going. So it really means taking bold steps, being willing to step outside of your comfort zone, to be brave and do the heart things that will actually change the world. You so know, for me, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, under Audacious Leadership Brand, we sort of have three really big pillars um, that we focus on here. And that has to do with things around purpose, around power and around professionalism. So it's really looking at, and I think everything that we're called to do as leaders, as people who are forging a path for others, really requires us to reconcile those three components. Okay, that is going to make for such a fabulous conversation in Goyo. Okay, so (laughs) I love this. The three Ps, purpose, power, and professionalism. Um, Can you... Tell me about a moment when you knew that your actions were no longer aligned with your purpose. Mm. Yes. Yes. So I ran, like I mentioned, I've been practicing um, October will actually be 10 years of law practice for me from when I graduated and actually was licensed to practice law. And I've always considered myself to be an advocate and someone who is there to leverage my power and my privilege for the benefit of others who maybe have not had 
access to the same sort of resources, relationships, et cetera, that I have that have gotten me to where I am. And so I distinctly remember um, working on a case where uh, we had a student who was made a, a bad, a terrible, really bad decision at school, um, had stabbed someone with a set of scissors. I don't know if it was scissors or pencil, but he was being put up for long-term suspension expulsion. And um, this was before I ran my own practice. And so my job was to represent a school district at that time and to remove this student from the school setting, the traditional school setting. Like I mentioned, I was a former educator. So I, my first professional job was educating students. Um, I was in a Title I school, which meant that 99% of my students were on free or reduced lunch. And I think over 90 some odd percent identified or per were perceived as Black or African-American. And it had always been my goal to make sure that there were opportunities for students, uh, largely because without an education, I just don't really know how you navigate life in the United States, um, globally. And I was being asked to take all of my legal prowess to bat to deny a student an opportunity in a school. And here in Georgia, sometimes when you are suspended or expelled from school, that can be a complete bar to traditional education which means that you might be able to go to an alternative school, but a lot of our alternative schools do not have really great track records for graduating students, graduating students on time, or even keeping track of where students are. And we really see it as a pathway to our prison industrial complex here. So the school to prison pipeline was like playing out. And I was on the side of sort of moving someone closer to the prison side of that pipeline and further away from the school. And I realized at that point that that was not something, although it paid really well, had a lot of benefits, et cetera, a soft-ish life in some ways, because it definitely was grueling hourly work, um, but it was not aligned with what I saw myself doing with my legal degree. It was not aligned with the person that I believe myself to be. And um, it was a really challenging moment to realize, like, I have to decide whether I'm going to stay in alignment with my values mm -hmm. or take an uncharted path with like $200,000 worth of student loan debt for a degree that I had attained um, and like sort of what that would look like, especially as someone who was not, you know, entrepreneurial. I always tell people I was an accidental business owner. Like I never thought like, oh, I'm going to start my own business. In fact, I always thought the exact opposite. Like I would never do that. Um, and so it was really a, a crisis of consciousness at that point, of conscience um, around what I was going to do. Hmm? What did you do? I ultimately left, started my own firm, represented families instead of school districts and really tried to make sure that students regardless of the worst decision that they ever made, um, had real opportunities to be their better selves. Um, think about pushing a child out. You know, most of our schools, it's, uh, you know, like your six to 16 is, is the compulsory mm -hmm. period of time that you have to be in school. And many go on to, you know, 18, 19 years old when they're graduating. And to just think of like setting someone off of a path that leads to opportunity at such a young age um, was compelling to me. So I launched my own practice and, and 
figured out how to help more students stay in classrooms, more parents have access to resources, more organizations, a lot of nonprofit organizations in the education space better figure out how to meet the needs of diverse students um, across things like race, class, and ability in particular. Um, so that's where I went until I had yet another crisis of <laughs> values. Um, so we met in the nonprofit space. How does all that intersect with uh, the charitable sector? Yeah, so I actually was fascinating. Um, worked with a lot of schools and education related organizations um, that were typically 501c3 organizations. And what I found was a lot of them, um, and interestingly, my whole legal career, I did a lot of pro bono work. They used to joke that I was like running a pro bono law practice on the 22nd floor of my big law firm because I was taking lots of landlord tenant case, working with nonprofits, trying to make sure that they were getting their status, maintaining their status. So because I had a lot of these um, educational nonprofits that I was working with and some in the health um, equity space also, what I found was that there were organizational gaps um, in terms of sort of how they were setting up and creating sustainable, I, I like to think about it like, you know, building your enduring sustainable impact, right? Like what's the legacy? So what I found is I had a lot of people who had great hearts, wanted to do really wonderful things, but were really on a fast track to burnout mm -hmm. and <laughs> being shut down. And that there were things that like, you know, having an eye for some legal pieces that you need to have in place and some compliance things that are absolutely required really helped led me to sort of talk more in that space about even just building a successful and sustainable organization so that right. you could ultimately expand your impact. So that's how I kind of connected there. So that, I mean, I, I love everything that you're saying about purpose and you know that that really resonates with me and, and we emerge, I, I find that about every five years I emerge into a new, better version of myself. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so continuing to ask yourself, are my actions aligning with my values? Am I living a purposeful life is something that I really love. Um, but let's get into, I'm just curious, the audacious is such a juicy word. Like, I just love to say it. Tell me a little bit about why you chose audacious. Yes. Um I think, you know, the pandemic, um, the racial reckoning that we saw here in the U.S. in particular with like the death of George Floyd, the unresolved death of Breonna Taylor and so many other people of color um, and really the conversations that were starting to happen or happen more at a higher volume um, during the pandemic really led me to think about, you know, the status quo and how many of us are, are creatures of comfort, myself as well. Um, but that what what the future of work needs, what our future selves need, are for people to be bold, to do things that are audacious, that are not the norm, um, that are not just, I, I like to say, you know, sometimes in social impact spaces, we do a lot of tinkering. We fix small things um, and we're not really doing some of the transformative work that our causes, our communities really need us to do because it would often have us out there doing something that nobody else is doing around us. And so what I really wanted to do is galvanize more leaders who feel that 
burn inside of them. Like we need to do more than what we're doing, but there's not a model. I don't know who to go talk to. Perhaps my board of directors might be like, what are you doing? Or the board chair might be like, we really need to push. And the rest of the board is like, what are you talking about? Like to really create a space for people who want to design boldly mm-hmm. what needs to happen um, moving forward. Priya Parker, who wrote The Art of Gathering and really talks about how we gather, she was speaking at a conference that I also happened to be speaking at. And she was saying, you know, like a lot of our rules for how we gather, et cetera, um, are in flux right now because of the pandemic and that there is a real opportunity to think about how we work, how we have meetings, how we organize and gather ourselves together right now, that there's like this, this crevice, this window where we can really reframe, re- reimagine what this looks like for future generations. And so I had felt that in the conversations about reimagining schools when the pandemic happened and you know a lot of schools went home and we're trying to figure out what this looks like virtually when a lot of jobs and professions went home. Um, I'm in the legal industry, like lawyers are notorious for not um, adapting to change rapidly. And so they were forced to do so. And so I'm like, this is a huge moment to really reframe, reimagine, redefine, restructure how we do things. And it's only going to be um, to our benefit if we are bold about doing it now um, versus sort of testing out some things and seeing because that window is going to close with the decisions that we've made or not. I love that. I love it so much. Uh, You and I are hosting different kinds of groups and I love the audacious leadership gathering that we were at just last week that you hosted. Uh, And, and you're so right. Uh, We are in this moment of opportunity now, aren't we? Where we really can imagine doing things differently, making bold, swift changes. And that, I think, is one gift that the pandemic taught us. Because it was like organizations I was exposed to were just soldiering on doing the same, like, what did you say? Creatures of comfort. You know, it Mm -hmm. was too scary for organizations to think about not having their big event or not doing and and the and and having these external factors restrict us and go okay you can no longer do things the way you were doing them Um, we are going through a reckoning now and we're emerging in this new world with all sorts of wonderful new possibilities in front of us I love that uh, these things come up in conversation when we're together so (laughs) We now, so many of us are now pursuing a purposeful life, but let's get into the power part of audacious leadership and talk about these traditional power dynamics and how they're being disruptive. Yes. So I love, you know, they had this whole conversation about the great resignation, right? And companies have been like, what is happening? Quiet quitting, like all these things that are not necessarily new, but they happen so rapidly um, that people have been like, wait, what's happening, right? Like, what do you mean you want to work from home? Which has been a thing that people have been asking for for a really long time and (laughs) organizations have to pivot and then now trying to figure out how they unpivot and being in lots of conversations around, you know, the talent wars and, you know, figuring out how you can keep and retain amazing people on your board, amazing people within your organizations, et cetera. Um, One of the things that really sat with me is 
this notion of power, right? Who gets to decide, who gets to participate in conversations around how work is structured, what time work should happen, where work should happen, um, what it means to, you know, there's the professional piece that I think sort of lies on there. And I think a lot of times in employer-employee relationships, board, um, board, executive director, philanthropy, I think is another really important space where these conversations need to happen. There's a level of power that is at play that we often don't discuss or identify, right? It's very easy for us to say, oh, you know, this next generation, they don't want to work because they're asking to work in a different type of way. Or, you know, like myself, I watched my parents spend, um, give a whole lot to their careers. And then when the recession happened in 2008, it was kind of like, thanks for your time. See you later. Right. So they invested a whole lot and didn't get out what that that contract um, said. And so I think power is at play in this global pandemic has definitely shifted some of the gears around who has power, right? Who can say, you know, I want a job that's fully remote and I'm not coming back to this if you're gonna require me to be in person at all or, you know, certain amounts of time. And so there is this need to redistribute power to really think about how do we build communities of, not just in the workplace, but I think in general, um, but specifically in the, the workplace that are honoring of the time and talent that everyone is bringing. And so it starts to starting to have these conversations with like, you know, what are you willing to give up in terms of power to ensure that you're creating the type of workplace that makes sense for the future of work, right? Like we know that we don't all have to be in, a, in the same building, the same time zone, the same country for work and meaningful work to happen. But what does that mean then around how we design for the type of culture and community that we want to have in our workplace? And who gets to participate in that conversation? What are some of the old ways of doing things that you know, a lot of research and data showed was not particularly helpful in some instances, really toxic in the work environment? Mm-hmm. How do we make shifts around that so that we're actually building a place of choice that people want to spend lots of time in. Recognizing too that, you know, we spend what, 90,000 hours working, roughly a third of our lives are spent working. Like they should be places that are liberatory, that are joyous, that's like you want to be there rather than this notion that sort of like work should, or just, you know, is terrible, sucks. It's sort of like this transactional thing. Like what would the world look like if we had a different Um, viewpoint around work, what work is and should be, and how do we then share in that conversation of designing that space um, is really what I focus on. What would the world look like? I just had this image of people smiling at work. (laughs) the, the, The idea of having a joyful work life where everybody doesn't have to feel like they have to drag themselves in. And with respect to the power dynamic, you know, that requires a leader to give up control over designing the the culture in the organization, doesn't it? It does. It does. It does require a give and take. And I think that that often becomes a scary conversation. Yeah. 
audacious conversation. It is audacious, yeah. <laughs> for, for leaders to think about, right? Like, because I get a lot of, well, well, what if? But what if you, you know, people come in and they don't do the work or if they're working remotely, you know, how do I know if they're doing the work or not? Or if they're just at home, like, hanging out, you know, and it, it's a lot of fear. I think that's actually a part of those conversations and assumptions about people. And I often remind leaders, like, you know, you have a whole hiring process, right? Like, if you feel like you're bringing on a whole bunch of people who aren't going to be committed to the work that you're doing, one, let's go back and look at purpose and make sure that it's clear what you're doing so that you're attracting the right people. But two, if you find yourself with a whole bunch of people who are not committed to the work that you're doing, or you feel like you have to micromanage to get them to an outcome, I would submit that you as the leader are not making great hiring choices and you're not creating the culture um, that your team needs. You know, I had a brief stint of time where I was a psychology major. It's a funny story from undergrad. I made a lot of things before I declared. (laughs) It kind of ended up with something because I really explored a lot. But, you know, in, in sociology, sorry, they talk a lot about, you know, we, most people want to, please like we we understand social norms and social contracts and most people want to be a part of that right so um i used to think about this when i was teaching right like most students want to behave they want to follow the rules they want to do what's appropriate in that space and when there's misbehavior there's something that has broken down that's a form of communication right so if you have a lot of people who would normally you know, if we're mostly wired to want to perform or do well or fit in, et cetera, and you have people who are sort of bucking against the system or the culture that you have set, that's an indicator that something's off. Either maybe you have like really hired all the wrong people and they're not aligned on purpose. They don't understand what they're doing, why they're there, what the work is. It's not meaningful. Maybe you have a system that's disempowering. You know, when I used to teach, Um, I would say, you know, people always trash on teachers like, oh, they don't care. You know, they don't do all these different things. And I said, what I saw over time is that it becomes harder and harder to fight against a system that's like saying you should do all these things without really understanding what you're doing. So the system and the way we did things was disempowering and people were responding to that because it's a lot of energy to resist all the time or to try to fight back. Mm -hmm. Um, So. So when we get. I mean, you know, what this speaks to is audacious leadership is knowing that you can design the alliance with your team. You can you can give up control of telling them how to behave and ask them to help design your social contract within your organization and then remind them that this is how we behave here. Mm -hmm. And then that that is really helpful in the hiring process as well, because you can say, this is how we behave here. And in season one of, uh, or season three, episode one of this podcast, uh, my guest, Tysley Williams, spoke to this so beautifully because she said, people need to know what the rules are. <laughs> and part of audacious leadership, I think, and this this uh, concept of power distribution is empowering your team to help build that as opposed to this top-down culture, right? I think that's what people are asking for, don't you? 
I think so. I think if you look at all these studies that are coming out from like the Ernst and Young's, the Harvard Business Reviews, the Stanford Social Innovation Nonprofit Board, like they're all suggesting that we're sitting in a space where people want more buy-in mm-hmm. to what they're doing with their time. And I think, you know, a lot of, you know, the great resignation, uh, when I read all those like think pieces and, you know, who's leaving it, like that was the thing. People sat home for a while. The pandemic sort of gave us this opportunity to collectively pause mm-hmm. and look at our lives and how we're organizing it, how we're running it and make a decision if that's the way we want to continue to go. Yeah. And for some people, they were like, yes, I'm good with this. This is what works for me. And for a lot of people, I think they're asking for more consideration in the process. Mm. I don't think it's that people don't want to work or everybody wants to start their own business. I think it's that people want to have some level of autonomy and agency Mm -hmm. in the work that they do as part of the transaction that happens with spending their time and talent somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, oh, I just had, I hate it when this happens when I have like five thousand thoughts going through my head when you talk and then I don't know which one of those to grasp onto but so this idea of disruption of power and empowering your team oh I know what I was going to say I often say to clients if you look back on this moment in your life if 20 years from now you look back on this moment in your life would the memory of it make you smile Mm. and if it doesn't let's make a change Mm -hmm. And that can happen individually, but it can also happen within an organization. And so many nonprofit organizations are stuck in pre-pandemic or they're trying to get back to what it was like before the pandemic. But that's not the right way of thinking about this. This is the, the, <laughs> the, the most productive way of thinking about it is who are we as an organization now? What have we learned about how to move forward for a new tomorrow. That's yeah. that's kind of an exciting conversation to think about, right? It so is. That brings us to professionalism and Koyo. Yes, I was about to take us there too. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're <laughs> in the same spot. <laughs> we're vibing. Yeah. Because you know, this is an opportunity um, to redefine professionalism. Yeah. Like redefine what our culture looks like, redefine what our core values might be, redefine what our core programs are. Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, particularly in the nonprofit space, we often don't think about how organizations have life cycles, right? So like this moment that you're in may be calling for you to grow into a new version, a newer level of yourself, rather than focusing and holding so tight to what we've always done which for a lot of organizations, I'm going to be audacious and candidly say that stagnation is going to lead to demise. Absolutely. Without question. Actually, like, you know, and I have this conversation, like you can't keep holding on to what has happened in the past because the world has shifted. Yeah. Things have moved. Um, And now the opportunity is to be proactive and think about where you want your organization to be in the future. And Mm -hmm. so holding on to, we did this, or we had these things, you know, I I, um, was working with this organization and they had a a lot of offerings that they had, a lot of um, 
services that they offered that were like teaching people how to use technology, come in and we'll sit down with you and like work on the tech together. And I was like, hey, have you heard of Google, YouTube? <laughs> That's not as, as valuable now as like people are moving to the cloud and a lot of these um, companies are offering training and tutorials and things like that. So like, what else can you offer? having a great conversation in the legal industry, which may be, you know, relevant to the nonprofit space as well. And I think education as well too, with there's a huge need, right? There's a lot of need and the programs and services that we've been offering are not able to meet that need. Um, and so there are a lot of new players coming in, a lot of folks thinking about, well, how can we use technology perhaps to solve some of these problems? Um, how can we design, you know, sort of differently around it or get rid of some of the barriers that say, oh, you know, you must have a law degree in order to offer legal services. What does that even mean? What what are legal services or not? So there's a huge crisis of, of, of identity and conversation around like, what does this mean when there's disruption happening around us, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, you know, you really have to think about what is the value that your organization actually offers beyond whatever those sort of deliverables, right? So beyond the signature fundraising event or the gala, or perhaps a program that you've offered that you're seeing people aren't really looking for anymore. Like this is an opportunity to think about what else can we do? What's that one thing that we really wanted to do that we didn't try because it seems so out of whack or so different? Mm -hmm real opportunity to do that and to define professionalism in a way that's open to curiosity, that's open to creativity, um, open more to community. And I think for those who are often looking for, you know, wanting to have commitments to justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, et cetera, um, this is a real opportunity to think about belonging differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of times we want to get all these diverse people into seats and then we want them to like drive the car in the exact same way the car has always been going in the direction that it's always been going. But if we're really committed to what diversity, accessibility, equity, all of these things can offer, we should be off the beaten path doing something differently because we're willing to hear those voices and be curious and be creative and try some things and be comfortable with the not everything that we try working out. I'm going, to, I'm going to admit some biases in terms of professionalism. Yes. That's how that I have, how I have shifted when I was in a position of hiring and power. I remember having conversations with my teenagers about tattoos and said, if you are going to get a tattoo, get one where you can cover it up with a suit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and now I think 15 years later, I think, wow, I, I wouldn't hire somebody if they came in with a tattoo. That is a bias that I have to deconstruct because the, you know, so, so yes, my, my definition of professionalism has shifted as well. And you're absolutely right. The future of work is looking at that differently. I remember, I remember when I threw away all my suits, I used to think wearing a suit made me professional, but that's not what professionalism is anymore. It's not. And I think we've for a very long time looked at things that were 
easy to like see and assess, right? Like, right. are your nails the right color and length? Um, what does your hair look your like? Hair. I was just gonna, I didn't want to be the one to talk about your yeah, hair. Oh, no. <laughs> I could talk to you all day about hair. I had lots of conversations about what am I gonna do with my hair going into the legal profession? Am I gonna wear it straight? Will I wear my Afro? Like, what will I do, right? Um, and none of those things, whether my hair was straight or an Afro or twisted as it is now or pinned up, like impacted whether I could do the work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit on the Audacious Leadership Chat, that a lot of times as leaders, we don't exactly know what we're looking for. It's just kind of like, oh, I, I'll see it if I, you know, when I see it, I'll, I'll know it. Or I want something that is like me, right? And sociology, again, would say that we tend to uh, circle around ourselves, people who are like us. And so when something doesn't look like us or seems very dissimilar, we retract and we like make all these types of assumptions about it to try to say, you know, like, oh, maybe that's not good to affirm the confirmation bias that we have. Like, oh, that's not like me. So it's not good for me, which is not necessarily the case often not the case. Um, and so without having a clear picture of like what this culture I'm building in my organization needs to look like or what I want it to look like, without having a clear idea of like, what's the amount of work that should get done in a day, a week, a month, a year, whatever, what am I really evaluating? What are the habits of mind and behaviors that I'm looking for? We go to default things that are sort of easier to assess. Oh, so-and-so showed up in a suit. They were on time. They asked a question at the end of the interview. Their hair. <laughs> <laughs> they are going to be great at this job, you know? And, like, it, it, um, it gets challenging. And I think about that with, like, a lot of the work I did with students who learn or behave differently, right? Sometimes going to an interview and being able to have a question right at the end and being, you know, is something that, we have to prepare them with like they're going to want you to have a question let's think about what that question is in advance um they're going to want you to follow up or like follow a conversation in a certain way um which for some of my clients you know who are on the spectrum like they're very literal in things and so you know wanting to have all these metaphors and all these sort of like subtle um, communication that happens, like they're missing it. And they're not that they're not going to be great at the job. It's just that they experience the world differently. And right. so when we're open to professionalism, not being this rigid set of things that you do or don't do, uh -huh. um, and, and maybe expanding what that looks like when we were talking about, you know, having your team help create this culture so that when you're saying this is what we do or don't do here, it's, not just your impression of what should or shouldn't happen, but also, you know, collective, it makes it easier for people to participate and for you to identify whether someone would fit within your environment and the culture, even if they're not, you know, maybe they have tattoos, but they could be like the best fundraiser or something out there because they're really great that tattoos might be a conversation starter for a lot of people or, or you know, they might, who knows, right? But just allowing ourselves to think a little differently about what it means to be a professional right yeah. now. Yeah. So the concept of audacious leadership is making sure you're purposeful in everything that you do personally and and, and within organizations, um, questioning the power dynamic and disrupting it and redefining what professionalism is. And part of that is learning about your 
it is it implicit bias that's what comes up for me um I love that you say that because my last the conference that I was just in that we talked a lot about implicit you did. bias the way that it shows up um in some of our work as as lawyers and thinking about the level of power and privilege you have as being someone who understands the law is able to argue it you know i was speaking with criminal defense attorneys so i'm like you know when you go to see your clients if they're incarcerated you know at what time you're leaving and some of your clients never have the assurance of knowing what time they get to go home and even just that framing in that conversation is different mm. and like we talked about then you know when you're making decisions when you're thinking about how urgent or non-urgent something is when you're thinking about how much time and humanity you're going to extend to someone who's going through a really disruptive period of their life regardless of why they're there um a lot of that is colored by our views about race and class and ability um, and unfortunately so much of that has been programmed in us from the histories that we don't always want to talk about mm -hmm. and we have to be intentional about disrupting and checking our biases mm -hmm. because our knee-jerk re reaction, that's what implicit racial bias, implicit bias is, period. It's just that like our initial reaction to some sort of racial, class, gender, whatever type of stimuli is a certain way. And we have to be focused on challenging or asking ourselves, why am I responding this way? Would I respond this way if my client or experience or whatever was different and like what does that mean about me mm -hmm. what opportunity does that give me to grow and how can i i like to use this phrase give equity every day right we don't have to wait for all of the big systems to become more equitable each and every one of us has some level of power how can we share that power how can we be more equitable in our interactions i have an example of that yes before we wrap up so this is a little bit personal. Uh, I have, as as you probably know, six stepchildren and two children of my own. So it's a family of eight. So I have experience with pretty much everything on the spectrum of parenting. And one, one experience is with a, a child who we've lost a couple of times. She's older now and she she went through a bout of addiction and homelessness and she recently resurfaced pregnant. And this is all sounds quite shocking, but, you know, again, it's about what are your implicit biases when yeah. you have a child who has caused you so much trauma and hardship. And then she shows up and says, I need a rescue again. Mm -hmm. And when I shared that story with my dad and we were going through that, um, he immediately said, well, she's a drug addict. You don't need this in your life. You you've got enough going on, blah, 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 blah. And I was very conflicted and thought, but we chose, we chose, he was very biased. That was his bias. And I, and just last night, because we've come a long way and we've reintegrated her in the family, we found her help and support and it's all going to end up the way it ends up. I don't know how it's going to end up. I have no idea, but, but I was talking to him about that last night. And he said, I'm, he told me, I'm so proud of you. I was wrong to have that reaction. Um, that's just my generation. That's just what we thought. We thought it should be the hard line. And I was so proud of him for mm -hmm. admitting that his initial response was an implicit bias, yeah. <laughs> even though I don't know that he would call it that. But but 
you know, here's an 81 year old man who admitted that, yeah, that's just my generation. That's how we think. And I was wrong. Yeah, that's huge. It's so huge. Right. But um, I tell that story just because it's a relevant and I think uh, example of how we do, how we need to constantly question ourselves when we get into uh, this area. And I might've just derailed this whole conversation, but <laughs> if I have, I just love being in conversation with you so much and we could talk forever and ever. Uh, so let me, let me get back on my podcast professionalism and, <laughs> and, 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 and take this conversation where I think it needs to go. If we were to end it right now, what do you think would be left unsaid? I think the thing that perhaps is left unsaid and maybe implicit and implied, uh, but I'm going to say it directly, is that leadership is first and foremost an inside job. Like, I think a lot of times as leaders, we really focus on, you know, how are we doing things for others? Where are we moving them? How are we moving these organizations, et cetera? But so much of where we go, how far we go, and how we get there really is dependent on who we are becoming ourselves as leaders and the grace and the opportunity that we give ourselves to grow and get it wrong. And I think so many times um, leaders, especially peerless leaders, folks who are in roles where there's no other peer, there's no one to like talk things through, carry so much mental of like, I have to get this right. I have to figure it out. I'm a, a, a a party of one and it's just it's me and me alone i can't be weak i can't not know the answer etc in front of others because you know they may not believe in my leadership or trust it there's a great article i think it was harvard business review also that put out about the emotional labor that leaders hold for trying to hold space for their teams and themselves in the midst of like all of the things that are going on and not always having an outlet mm -hmm. um, and so I think the thing that's unsaid is that to be a really great leader and a leader whose impact and leadership leaves the type of legacy that you're hoping for and the type of imprint on the people that you're working with and around and alongside is that you have to be committed to your own self-development. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to be, I believe, in community with other people who are pushing and moving towards the same mark because we don't get as far doing it alone. And you don't necessarily have the luxury or have to have like that team. And sometimes, you know, I've been in leadership positions and I'm like, I watch my team and they're all laughing and getting together and doing stuff. And I'm like, man. Why did you I, invite me to the party? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want, you know, I want to be a part of that. And like, yeah. in some regards, there are there distinctions, right? But I think also there's, opportunity i don't know what that is um there's opportunity for us to create our own circles and create the spaces that we wish existed for us as we were growing in leadership mm -hmm. and then the places to be poured into and i like to call them brave spaces where we are willing to being vulnerable to exploring aspects of ourselves that we may or may not be as pleased about at all times um and developing so that we really can lead and design boldly yeah. for the future of work. You know, I, I mean, and that 
so you had some bizarre dinging going on and then my dog started barking and that's just the messiness of some people might say that was unprofessional but it was just life a beautiful example of life and I love the concept and I'm so glad that we're ending with this that that an audacious leader is willing to ask the team for help, is willing to demonstrate that they're human, is willing to open up their heart, is willing to admit that they don't have all the answers. And I think when an audacious leader will does that, they create an opportunity to build community and trust with their team. Absolutely. Isn't that what we're all craving now in this moment? Absolutely. I just love being in conversation with you. Thank you oh so much. I'm so glad we were able to get this on the books. Um, yes. So, <laughs> yes, it's we're coming up to the end of the season, and this is a fabulous episode to launch us into the next season. So, I really look forward to continuing to talk to you about what that might look like and how we can continue to share space together. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I guess my camera froze. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Kimberly, um, be well, take care of yourself. And I look forward to joining one of your other conversations um, soon and just continuing this conversation. Well, you heard it. Encoyo is on an ambitious mission to disrupt our existing construct when it comes to purpose, power, and professionalism across all sectors. Her audacious leadership movement is challenging leaders to lead in brave, bold new ways with courage, conviction, and clarity. Um, so Enquayo invites you to join the Audacious Leadership Circle or connect with her on social media, and you can find the links in the show notes. And as always, we invite you to join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast, joining the Intersection Hub mailing list, and sharing this conversation with people who you think would get value from it. Thank you so much for spending time here today. See you next time. <laughs>